We light this candle as a sign of peace in the coming light of Christ. As we await Christ's coming, we remember the promises of the prophets of the child who is to come, that he shall be called ruler of nations, Emmanuel, desire of nations, radiant dawn. We remember these promises even as we say, Come, Lord Jesus. As we see these candles lit, we anticipate the coming of the Christ child, whose light we celebrate even now. As we see the light of these candles, we wait with anticipation for the one who has come and who is yet to come. We remember Christ's promise that he will come again, even as we say, Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. God, God of grace, grace ever, ever faithful to your promises, the earth rejoices in the peace of our Savior's coming and looks forward with longing to his return. Prepare our hearts to receive him when he comes, for he is the Lord of all time and space.
and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the name of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Holy God of joy, we rejoice in the reality of who you are. We live within the joy of your love for us. Our contentment comes and goes, our happiness ebbs and flows. Our feelings depend upon our circumstances, our physical health, our brain chemistry. But our joy is deeply rooted in our identity as your beloved children, and we give you thanks. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of you gathered here in the sanctuary and those worshiping in other places. We are glad and grateful to gather in the house of the Lord in the name of the Lord. And because that is the way that we have gathered in Christ's name, it means that our word of welcome is one that is deep and wide. There are no qualifying adjectives attached whatsoever. All are welcome in God's house, and so that way we, we greet one another. Due to the ongoing Omicron variant and the lack of knowledge about it, we are not doing fellowship at hour at this time. We're not serving food. You're, of course, welcome to have whatever conversations you wish to have, but we will not go into Old Buttonwood for fellowship hour until we know a little bit more about Omicron and uh, how to best uh, protect the health of our, our members and guests here at First Church. I'd like to highlight a few things from the back of your bulletin or also from the back of your uh, hymn insert, which is basically to lay out a few things for our worship life for the week that is to come. On Tuesday night, the Reverend Jerry Foote and I will be leading a service for the longest night here in the sanctuary at 7 o'clock. That service will be live streamed if you're unable to be here and wish to participate remotely with it. I'd like to note as well that on Christmas Eve, we will have two services, one at 4 o'clock, and this is the key thing to notice, the other at 9 o'clock. So 9 o'clock for our lessons and carol service here in the sanctuary and 4 o'clock for our celebration service of worship, which, of course, uh, is particularly designed to be accommodating for people with small children. And then on the Sunday after Christmas, we will gather back and hear one service that day at 11 o'clock. It will be a Moravian love feast. And you may be asking, what is a Moravian love feast? It is a traditional and historic liturgy that includes the singing of hymns. In our case, this will be Christmas carols on the Sunday after Christmas and an agape meal, which is simply a meal that draws us together in Christian fellowship. It's not much of a meal, by the way. The, the Moravians in the past would have used uh, a sweet bun and perhaps even beer. We will be serving you a cookie. Uh, but we will represent the agape meal in that way, and it is an opportunity for us to gather together in this sanctuary and sing our Christmas carols on the Sunday after Christmas in a way that honors an ancient liturgy. With these things noted, let us continue our worship with our confession of sin. In the world and in this season, there are many claims on our lives. We take this time to remember that in our baptism, Christ claimed us as his own. We acknowledge before God and one another that we have not followed Jesus Christ with all our hearts and minds and strength. Trusting in God's grace, let us pray. Holy God, 
You are the ground of our being, the source of all that is good. Before a word is on our lips, you know it. Before we take an action, you see our future. And knowing humanity as you do, you came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that you might be one with us, experiencing the depth of human pain and joy, the frailty of our bodies and fears of our minds, ultimately giving yourself for us. With such wonderful good news, we ought to be ready to accept any calling you place upon us. But we are not. We are hesitant in doing your work. Forgive us, we pray, for the times when we forget all your loving kindness toward us. Instill within us the profound desire to do your work. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. is for us and not against us. For that very reason, God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture reading comes to us from the book of Hebrews in the 10th chapter, starting at the 5th verse. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here ends our first reading. Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke in the first chapter. And Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Here ends our second reading. We continue our gospel reading also in the first chapter of Luke, picking up at the 46th verse and continuing through the 55th. Continue to listen for the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It is plenty easy to ignore a calling if you want to. The late Fred Craddock once told a story about a young woman who became a nun. She broke up with her fiancé in order to pursue her calling. He tells the story that years later she ran in to the man she had nearly married on the subway in New York City. She told a friend it was as if it happened all over again. I went home and cried for a day. Her friend replied, well, if you loved him, why did you become a nun? She answered, I was called to be a nun. Life may be easier sometimes if we ignore a calling, but we will miss out if we do. I found myself pondering this as I reread Mary's story this week. There are so many artistic renderings of beatific Madonnas that I wonder sometimes if the terror of it all really strikes us. Uh, Not necessarily the angel, although I'm sure that part was unnerving enough. No, I'm thinking of the message the angel brought. Unwed, engaged, pregnant. What a terrifying prospect. I suspect some of the rather beautiful language that poetic renderings of the nativity have used through the years, like great with child, have arisen as a means of avoiding the word pregnant because it is associated with S-E-X. Most people have long since figured out what causes pregnancy. Engaged. Pregnant. Problem. The Bible doesn't really give us any indication that the angel Gabriel was asking a question, but Luke does record Mary's response, here am I. But I bet she was terrified. 
How could she not be? Tradition paints Joseph as a kindly man, but the divorce laws of those days were, unsurprisingly, heavily weighted in favor of men. Joseph would have been entitled to keep her dowry and kick her to the curb. Kicking her to the curb could have involved public stoning. In Matthew's version of the story, we learn that Joseph determined not to do that. He decided that he would break the engagement quietly in order to spare her the worst consequences of her unplanned pregnancy. He doesn't in the end. But in that moment, right then, how could it be anything other than terrifying? The Bible says Mary set out in haste for the hill country. Of course she did, like so many young women who have been sent off to visit an elderly relative for a few months before they started to show. But she's not just leaving town in order to save her reputation. She is leaving town to save her skin. Any way you see it, it wasn't easy. I love what Tish Harrison Warren wrote in the New York Times last Sunday. Mary was called by God, and her life reminds me that the vocations that God calls us to inevitably involve both joy and pain. Love and loss are a double helix on this side of heaven. You can't have one without the other. God's calling on our lives will inevitably require us to risk both. It is only because we have Matthew's parallel version of the story that we know that Joseph also heard his calling from God to remain as Mary's husband. But in Luke's gospel, we move rather abruptly from the Annunciation to Mary to her getting out of town in haste, and then almost as abruptly we read that the whole world is to be taxed, and suddenly Joseph and Mary are back together, headed down the Bethlehem Road to the innkeeper and the stable and the shepherds and the magi. Uh, Luke leaves out a lot, maybe with good reason. Could be the whole family preferred not to remember this particular period in their lives. But before we move on from Mary's precarious fix, we have this little interlude that I just read. We call it the Magnificat. It has, of course, been immortalized in pages of scripture and in music and in paint and in poetry. The Magnificat tells us what sort of God... Mary knew. Listen to a few phrases again, and I'll use the King James this time for effect. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. She's facing a single pregnancy. She's at her cousin's house to save her reputation and maybe her skin, and she's singing about God has noticed her low degree. That's some serious faith, if you ask me. I wouldn't have wanted this calling. She goes on. For he that has, is mighty has done for me great things, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shewed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath pulled down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. Now those last two lines, 
might they be a little hard for us to hear? Mary's view of God is one where the rich are sent empty away. I I find that a little hard to stomach myself, particularly in view that if Mary gets her way, my stomach is going to be empty, so might yours. Now, I don't think of myself as a rich man. I have, as one of my friends likes to say, all that I need and more than I'm worth. But I don't think of myself as rich. And I suspect many of you feel the same way. But here's the problem. Compared with Mary, a young woman, a peasant, a nobody in a terrible fix, we are loaded. And Mary is making a statement about what she believes about God. And what makes it even more uncomfortable is it is a biblical statement. Mary's words are ripped straight from the lips of Hannah in the Old Testament. Do you remember Hannah from a few weeks ago? She is the mother of the prophet Samuel. Barren and bereft, she prayed to God to hear her cries and to deliver her from her childlessness. Now, children are important in every age, but for a woman in the ancient Near East in the first century, they were social security. They were the old age pension. When a woman and her husband would become too old to work, their oldest son would take over the household and whatever livelihood came with it and keep them in their old age. And when her husband died, it would be her son and his wives who would look after their aged mother. To be barren in the Old Testament was to be a woman whose hope was drying up fast. So when Mary sings her song about God, she is channeling another woman at a terrible fix. And she is saying that the God whom she worships, the God whose will she is embracing, is a God who does something about it. Now you know what it is. It is whatever God needs to do something about. Mary is singing about a God who redeems bad things. She's singing about a God who won't leave injustice running rampant. Mary's view of God is that God is on the side of the one who needs God the most. Liberation theologians say that that means that God is on the side of the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. And they summarize it this way, that God exercises a preferential option for the poor. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God likes the poor more. It doesn't mean that God loves the rich less. It does mean that God's redemptive activity is aimed where it is most needed. Folks will struggle with this if they see God's love as a zero-sum game or like a piece of pie, the pie, if you take out one piece, it means there's one less for everybody else. Thinking that for God to lavish love where it is needed most, it has to come from someone else. But that's not who God is. It's not a zero-sum guy. There's not even a pie. God has enough love to do what God wants to do with God's love. I'm very fond of the way I once heard Dr. James Forbes put it in a sermon. I'm going to paraphrase him now. But he said, suppose you're a parent. You have two children. One of them is bright, successful, self-assured. She is most likely to succeed. And then your second child struggles terribly. He's bullied, he's mistreated. Folks walk away from him. 
What parent, Forbes concluded, wouldn't channel all of her energy into making that child's life better? He concludes, I like to think of a great big mama God up there loving us all, but putting that love where it is absolutely most needed. I think maybe that's the God Mary knew. So she leaned back on her faith, back on the songs of her ancestors, and pulled this prayer out of the lips of another woman to praise the God she knew. It's a prayer with a biblical base. And any way you cut it, God is agitating on the side of those who need God the most. Throughout the Old Testament, they're identified this way, widows, orphans, outsiders, aliens in a strange land. Basically, anybody who can't help themselves. And when Jesus shows up, where does he spend his time? But with the sinners and the suspect. If you think back across the Bible and remember all the times God gets angry with, angry with the ancient Israelites, there are a handful of infractions that crop up. Early on in their history, it's idolatry. God is always getting mad at the Israelites for their idolatry. But the later we get in the Old Testament, the writings, the closer we come to the time of Christ, it seems the more that God is angry at the people of Israel for forgetting the poor in their midst, for running roughshod over those least able to defend themselves. So Mary's song shows us the sort of God that we know, a God who is deeply concerned for those of low estate, and we don't have to be, but we can't claim to be on God's side if we aren't. It's that simple. The Bible says so. God has clearly stated where God's sympathies lie. If we read the Bible, this is the God we get. There's a lot of talk these days about how best to help the poor. I may not have the solution, but God's preference is clear. It reminds me of a classic moment between then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and the Reverend William Sloan Coffin. The discussion was undoubtedly something political, and they were generally on opposite sides of the aisle, but they were dear friends. Coffin continued haranguing the Secretary of State in an interview until finally he snapped at him, Bill, what would you have me do? And Coffin is said to have paused for just a moment and replied, Mr. Secretary, I am a Christian minister. It is my job to call for justice to roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is your job to figure out the irrigation system. Now, I have absolutely no idea what the proper irrigation system is to assure that we are flooding the love of God that we have experienced into the world so that it reaches the places where it most needs to go. I don't, I don't know exactly how we should do that, but I do know this. It is our calling. It is our calling. That's the God we worship. 
That's the God we worship with what we say and with what we do. We are called, called by God. Let let me personalize that a bit more. You are called, called by God to work for justice and mercy, to seek to see the lowly elevated. We look back to the Bible, to Mary and Hannah, to all the other voices who said, here am I. This is the God they knew. But more importantly, if we look to Jesus, if we look at all he said and did and taught us to do, we see God. If we look to Jesus, who acknowledged that the poor will always be with us, we see God. We see God's answer to the pain and brokenness of the world. Even as we look to the baby in the manger, we know that there is the Christ of the cross. And it is on that cross that God says to us, Here am I. Oh, it's easier sometimes to ignore what God is calling us to do. But the thing about a calling is it doesn't just go away. Because God doesn't just go away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us together affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. God does not desire us to bring burnt offerings and sin offerings, but instead asks that we do God's will. So we bring to God now the offerings of our lives and our labors with the prayer that God's will may be done through them.
holy God, you reveal yourself in so many ways, especially in your Son, Jesus Christ. We gather up the prayers of this community for the church, the world, and all in need, confident that you know our deepest thoughts and will refresh our spirits. We pray in the name of the one who transforms principalities and powers and renews the heavens and the earth, Christ our Savior. For the church, we pray for our siblings in Christ, who gather as we do on this day all over the world, in house churches and storefronts, on reservations, in townships, and base communities, among immigrants, in hospital chapels and prisons, and with persons who are dying. Wherever the church is found on frontiers of mission and service, empower its witness to strengthen and stretch the vision of your people. For the earth and all creatures, we pray for the healing and well-tending of all that you have given us, for water and air, soil and stars, for creatures that roam the seas and those that fly thousands of miles in migration, for mammals and reptiles, insects and microbes in swamps and forests and in our own homes. Show us their beauty and our need for them. For an end to violence, oppression, and injustice, we pray for all who sing with Mary a song of joy for deliverance, for all people who long to hear your promise of good news, for all peacemakers, for governments that hold at the heart of their work the needs of people otherwise invisible, for all people left homeless and destitute by the greed of others. Lead your people from darkness to light. For Mary and Joseph in every land, we pray for all people who face the enormous vocation of raising children, for biological parents and adopting parents, for grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends, for children who long for a parent's or guardian's love and care, for children who will be born today, and especially for those born into hunger and insecurity. Let the light of your desire for our well-being shine through all, through all children. For those we hold dear and those who have asked for our prayers, we pray for everyone who is in any need today, for the lonely, for all people who are anxious at this time of year, for our elders in the nursing home, for people who cannot find work, and for those whose work is not life-giving for them. For our own lives, we pray that Mary's song of joy and Joseph's loyalty will be magnified in us. Fill us with the breath of Advent. Stir us to extend ourselves beyond what we thought possible. Show us that, like Mary, we need not fear. We remember with thanksgiving the faithful who have gone before us. As your light shines on us through them, guide us to enlighten others. With the whole church we cry, let it be, trusting in your word, and praying these words along with the words that your Son taught us. Amen. 
It seems to me I may have slightly overstated how easy it is to avoid a calling. Sometimes it takes real commitment to avoid doing what you're called to do. But if you, if you persist, you can't avoid it. But if instead you say, here am I, then perhaps you will also say, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and to those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.